0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes and Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Jonathan Letham is back with a new book, and we are back in Brooklyn, which I personally as a reader am very excited about. I liked the feral detective, but I'm really excited to be back in Brooklyn with you. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining thank,
1: us. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a it's a thrill.
0: So Brooklyn Crime novel. Okay, we're back on Dean Street. Yeah, it's the seventies. We're back with feral children in the city, which I happen to quite like this whole feral children thing. But the style of this book is a little cinematic. It's a little dreamy. It's a, it's sort of shaped out of vignettes. It's a really different kind of reading experience, and I'd really like to start there because I was so taken aback
1: in a way Thanks. and completely Thanks. lost I'm in glad. the book,
0: but. Stylistically, it's a change for you, and so let's start there.
1: It's very different from anything I've done before, and and in a way, what I wanted to do was find my way back into the like my kind of source code.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) With with
1: Brooklyn and the seventies and Dean Street and all of that stuff that that is amalgamated. I mean, it it reappears everywhere, but it's of course handled most directly in in that semi autobiographical uh, novel, The Fortress of Solitude, which you know at the time it was the biggest thing I tackled. It was the most intimate thing I tackled at the same time. And the way I found my way into my own personal source code then was to think of it in kind of like classical Dickensian Bildungsroman, you know, like coming of age narrative, very romantic in a way. I mean, there's a lot of strangeness in that book, and there's a lot that's unconventional. But the, the book is fundamentally like a like a David Copperfield or a yeah. or, you know it's or you know it's really a coming of age story. And I wanted to try to reapproach all of that stuff that haunts me. Mm-hmm. You know, writing one book did not expunge it and do it with a completely different kind of toolkit where I I took in a way I took the you know poor little Dickensian orphan child in the middle off the table. Yeah.
0: But also we're using people's nicknames. Yeah. No one really has a proper name, so you are carrying through the Dickensian thing a tiny bit. I mean, you could argue with the name thing.
1: Yeah. We're playing
0: around. I mean, the millionaire's son and C, and you know, nicknames for parents, (laughs) and I don't want to say it's hallucinogenic because it's really it's not that, but it is. It's kind of dreamy in a sweet way, even though we're, you know, back in Boreham Hill on Dean Street. In a moment that's not
1: easy. It's also twenty years further down the line, and one of the things I, lo- I love that you call it dreamy. One of the things I felt about it was that it was, it became a book about time and yeah. about about what it is to remember things and not be able to let go of them, even as they become more shrunken in the rearview mirror and harder to explain to other people. You know, when I wrote about Brooklyn in nineteen ninety nine and 2000 and 2001, I was talking about stuff that was like a physical, local, recent memory for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, my tribe is aging and dispersed. Some people have passed. And the city in that period seems more and more like a surreal, you know, I'm really commemorating something that's for, for younger readers, especially, I think seems quite impossible. Yeah One of the, one of the things I wanted to do was just deal with that, you know, just deal with time and memory and the strangeness of, pers- of its persistence. And so that dreaminess is really about like, can we reconstruct this scene? Right. Is it even possible?
0: You have a great line. I'm actually going to quote you for a second, because I, I do love this line. It isn't the novelist's fault, is it, when he recalls or doesn't what seemed important to him or not? And then you follow it with, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean... And it, it does, that line comes sort of later in the book, but you're cutting back and forth sort of, you know, here's the early 80s and here's a moment in the aughts and you are bouncing around. And one of the things I really enjoyed as I was reading this book too, is just sort of connecting the threads. I'm like, wait, oh, right, this kid. And it's almost like interconnected stories, except much faster and sort yeah. of quick cuts more than right. anything. Well, it-
1: so, in a way, it's not interconnected stories because they're not yeah. stories. They're right.
0: like no, no, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, no, that, that's no, no. not the
1: I, best metaphor. I, no, I, I understand. You're reaching for something because it's mm-hmm. a really strange form, and mm-hmm. I don't claim to be some sort of uh, maestro who invented something right. uh, at the outset. I really didn't know what I was doing. I just needed to write down this stuff, and I needed to, okay. and then I needed to put it together like a puzzle. And I spent so much time on my hands and knees on the floor <laughs> looking at. Uh, three three by five cards. You know, got once it. I started to generate these pieces of of memory and yep. start to see how they actually function together, so I I I mean, I like the form of interconnected stories. I believe right. in it. I see people mm-hmm, write mm-hmm. it. I've never done done a book that way right. myself, but I sometimes think about doing it. But I would say this is something else. It's almost like a hologram. Like I've like I've got these glinting pieces of memory, and they've been thrown up into a space where they all refract one against the other and if you trust it or or walk around it <laughs> like a hologram you can actually see that it's one giant thing but it also all, is always threatening to dissolve into fragments
0: i like both pieces though i like the fragments on their own as i'm reading through them but by the end of the book and it has a really satisfying ending too i wasn't quite sure where we were going with the ending i was like okay but it kind of sits as two disparate the the fragments, as you said, mm-hmm. and this overarching portrait of this community and this time yeah. and all of these kids. and it's kind of trippy that you were able to do both at once. And you also haven't lived in New York for a minute. You've been out on the West.
1: I've Coast been before. teaching at Pomona College for 13 years. And so this is my second stint as a Californian. You know, I lived in the Bay Area in my twenties, which is which is why my very first novels are all set in the Bay Area, like Gun with Occasional Music and Amnesia Moon. But I go back and I and I and I touch the ground re- regularly. But I also, in a way, I think I thrive on this distance because I'm always dreaming my way back and trying to reconstruct it like a kind of diorama in my head. And anyway, this is a book about the past. I mean, the present appears, but the char- the characters in this book, and I think they're even open about it, are sort of baffled by the present. They see the past so powerfully when they walk down mm-hmm. the streets of of you know Gowanus and Boram Hill that they can't really work out what the present means because the past is still so thick on the ground for them.
0: It's your thirteenth novel. <laughs> I was doing the math twenty fourth yeah. book, thirteenth novel and even though there's a little bit that popped for me when I was thinking about what it felt like to read The Fortress of Solitude 20 years ago, which is a horrifying number. Excuse me. Like, I cannot I believe know, I know. it's been 20 years since uh, that book. Yeah, I know. But it's wild to see the evolution of you versus sort of the evolution of this place that I sort of feel like I have a land... I mean, granted, okay, I live in New York, and I do, like, I can on the subway and be out on Dean Street in no time but in terms of a literary landscape right like I'm sitting here with Brooklyn crime novel and I'm thinking about Paula Fox and desperate characters yeah and if you haven't read that novel I'm gonna say go out it's tiny it's very quick
1: you'll read beautiful it book quick. beautiful it's
0: gorgeous book. Yeah. and I'm sure I read it you know so it had a moment where it popped again probably mm-hmm. what 10 15 years ago maybe long ago.
1: I'm I'm gonna guess that that's that itself is maybe 20. Close to 20 years ago, yeah. uh, that, that okay. rediscovery of Paula Fox.
0: <laughs> That's when I came to her. But yeah. this idea that you can capture a place that is constantly changing. And you really do it, though. You really grab this moment, right? It's like watching New York in 70s film, right? Like Serbico, yeah. <laughs> um, Mean Streets, all of this. Like, there's that moment in New York where you're like, oh, they kind of did it in American Gangster, Like they recreated that sort of seventies gritty feel. Yeah,
1: but it's it's still not the same because those no, it's totally not. (laughs) Those other films you mentioned, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what they are, are accidental documentaries. Right. I mean, when they filmed The French Connection, or they filmed Serpico, or even a a a lighter film from that time, you know, uh, the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is a kind of you know a a a goofy thriller, or or even a even a romantic comedy. You know, if you look at the Goodbye Girl or Tootsie, mm-hmm. when you have characters in real New York backdrops in that period, late 60s through the 70s, even into the 80s, what yeah. you get, and, and it's spellbinding, you get an accidental documentary about how the city's changed. And that's not the same thing as trying to evoke it intentionally. That's just what it was. And... um But, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned these films and also you mentioned Paula Fox because one of the things that distinguishes this book and its, you know, its strangeness or dreaminess that you've mentioned is that it's so heavily sourced in my going back and finding these kinds of materials that help me believe and help me, in a way, locate in my own body, in my own memories, the feeling of what the city was like back then and I, devo- I devoted an enormous amount of attention to just like but you know what was it really like not trusting my romantic memories but talking with people looking at pictures looking at old newspapers i mean i mean i did a tremendous amount of research not to prove that everything was historically accurate but to just feel the texture and i really wanted it to to be in that way almost like a kind of a documentary Behind the characters, the same way in those films, you know, you might have an actor, Gene Hackman or Dustin Hoffman or whoever, in the foreground enacting a fictional story, but behind them was something that was like a documentary.
0: Yeah, I now, because of your New Yorker piece from August, that Mm -hmm. feels like it started as you were working on this book, and I do want to spend some time, I now have a tab on my browser for Jervis Anderson's
3: uh, work great.
0: in The New Yorker. I'm yeah. so excited to really dig in there. I know I read his Cornell West profile a really long time ago, and I'm sure I've read his Richard Wright profile at some point, but there's a lot of New York in there that I just really want to spend some time with. But that essay, it's long and gorgeous and complicated, and clearly you spent time with people that you had not seen. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, you call it out specifically, there's some neighbors that you had not seen in 20 years and yeah. or
1: even longer in some cases. longer. I mean, Tina Davis, the, the woman who I end with, she and I hadn't seen each other for something like uh, 40 years. That's
0: wild. Yeah, that is so wild. She has That's a great line in this piece too. But when you were shaping that, Right. You, I mean, because you are working with the facts, right? You're working with your old neighbors and you're working with right. redlining and gentrification and all of these things. And it was so weird to read that gentrification really wasn't a phrase until the 60s. And it makes perfect sense. And yet, you mean it hasn't always been around? It, it,
1: yeah. Well, it's even, I mean, it was coined in 64, but right. it wasn't a word that people were using in a familiar sense until really the very end of the 70s. And you don't find it appearing in the New York Times until the early '80s. So it was a, it was both a colloquial and an academic term, but it wasn't recognized enough that journalists thought they could use it and and expect people to know what they meant.
0: Did you start with that kind of thought process as you were sitting down to? I mean, are you working on the fiction as you're? talking to your former neighbors and doing sort of, I don't want to call it research because it's not quite research, but it is. It...
1: Well, this is a great question. And it's really specific to this project. The place, because I'm a novelist and I begin in my senses and my, my body, and I begin in my, my dreaminess, you know, what you what you called the, the dreaminess of this book, where I start making things up and, and remembering them at the same time. And I want to express this in, in, in narrative terms. Everything for me begins in that expressive impulse. And it isn't that I checked it or I or I tried to, you know, scratch it out, cancel mm-hmm. it, but I did want it to be in this case of the, with this book enlivened at every possible level by finding stuff out. You know, if I if I thought I remembered something, let's go find out what someone else remembers. So I was looking people up all the way through the writing of this novel and saying, does this sound like something that happened or did it only happen in my head? And it was that process of recapturing a community that I was doing in some, in some respects, in literal terms, I was locating people I hadn't spoken with in years that pointed me towards writing this nonfiction piece that followed the novel but the writing of that essay completely is it like it's it's an afterbirth basically it's like i i the 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 process of writing the which was a combination of research and invention and conflation and and you know that process was was so compelling to me that i sort of couldn't stop even after i had it i had as much as i needed so the the essay reflects like the impossibility of stopping like i i still wanted to know more and it led, and and then, in particular, the Jervis Anderson essay made me think. Well, wait a minute. I'm the only person who knows these people who he interviewed and can kind of corral them again and mediate. You know, I mean, you start to feel like you're as you get older. This is just a, a novelist issue. This is anyone who's blessed with a longer life and and as you know, and memories that are important to them and connections and. And, and people that you can still, you know, compare notes with, you start to feel like you're building a bridge into the past that that's made up of only the elements that you can, you know, construct, and that only you can walk across that bridge.
0: It also feels like there are three different pieces of that bridge, though. There's the memory piece, there's the nostalgia piece, and then there's this legacy is what I've been sort of referring to it in my own notes for this show, for want of a better word, because it doesn't, There's an overlap, obviously, between the idea of creating a legacy and also having nostalgia for a moment kind of thing. But I do feel like they are three separate concepts. And your relationship with time is a little different for each of them. Certainly, your relationship to people for Mm -hmm. each of those is different. And I was sort of wondering if you were ever going to sort of trip into nostalgia and somehow you don't do it in this book. I never felt like you were tripping. I I just always felt like you were sitting with this idea of, you know, memory. And then there were characters that were just constantly thinking about legacy and what everything sort of meant to them. And nostalgia is something that I'm not particularly fond of.
1: I'm pretty suspicious of it. And I, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling gratified that you are making this distinction because for me, it was the, it was the, uh, the battle. Continuously to make sure that, as as much as I'm situated in these desires for the past, desires to understand it, and sometimes desires to recapture it or re- even mm-hmm. re-enter it, that that be distinguished from nostalgia, which for me is like fundamentally has a a kind of uh, falsification, self gratification that goes into it, and um, yeah. I I needed to. To know that I that I was um, resisting it, and I and I, you know that when you talk about the book, sometimes saying maybe, <laughs> or just catching itself, you know, part of the 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 way I constructed this book because it's made of so many disparate pieces was to let the voice be the the yeah. inquiry is the is the commanding overarching, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 momentum comes from this desire to understand. It's really a book that's a, that's a, that's you know it's like an essay film or something. There's this there's this urgency to just figure something out. And supporting that desire is is the sense that if I drift into nostalgia or or you know kind of sentimentality or into too much narrative, too much mm-hmm. storytelling mm-hmm. that yep. I'll probably blow the inquiry. And the inquiry was actually more important so this is also a book that's suspicious about, not just about nostalgia, but about the power of storytelling itself, which, you know, I it's something I'm by. Obviously, I love it, but I had to be careful. I had to yeah. resist it.
0: So then Brooklyn Crime Novel, does this start with this idea of inquiry and sort of questioning storytelling is that what drove it or was it really the time and the place and the characters and sort of that moment when you're talking about sort of sitting in the expression of it all right like yeah where does this book start free i mean obviously you've been walking around with this in the back of your brain for a while like just it's clear that you're doing so much here (laughs) that you have been thinking about this for more than a minute but you do at some point have to sit
1: down and say okay let's where do I, where water. do I begin yeah, what exactly. do I do well I can tell you a story that's a, okay a, it's probably probably worth the worth the telling and that is you know so I mean to be to begin with I wrote Fortress of Solitude I uh, you know it was published 20 years ago it was the writing was finished that's to say even longer than 20 years ago and at the time it was the largest effort of my life it meant th- meant the most to me. Of anything I'd written, and it felt not just exhaustive but exhausting. And people would say, "Wow, this is a great vein of discovery for you. You're writing about the past, and you're writing about yourself, and it's also different." Will you ever? Are you going to write about Brooklyn more? And my my immediate instinctive response was, "No way. I'm so I'm so I've I you know sure I can see areas of incompleteness or or frustration." that are a residue of this attempt because the subject is so big, but I just said everything I could think to say and I'm done. And and in fact, I didn't really write about Brooklyn directly for, for 20 years. So that feeling lasted a, lo- a long time that, that the Fortress of Solitude was like a, a, an exhaustive take, but halfway through that 20 year journey, it was turned into a, Uh, It was adapted as a piece of musical theater in New York City uh, at the public at the Public Theater by uh, these beautiful theater artists, uh, a a songwriter who's sadly subsequently died named Michael Friedman, who was a genius, and the theater director Daniel Aukin, and um, they put together a vision of Fortress of Solitude as a theatrical piece that did two things. It took the book away from me, which was great. I was like, it's yours now. It's another, especially because, you know, I, I don't even really know how to think about musical theater. I've seen only a few, a few, uh, musicals in my life. And I, and I certainly didn't feel like I could help them figure out how to do it. I was just like a, I was rendered helpless. I was just a witness. And, um, that was sort of great. And it was also very moving when I saw the result. I sat in the audience and here was this material that was so personal to me, but it had been, because musical theater is fundamentally kind of allegorical or, or metaphorical, it's not a literal form. When people break into song, they're translating emotion into into another register. And it handed my own childhood material back to me in this really unrecognizable, but deeply moving form. So I was really amazed by it, and it it made me think about this the street and the the people on it differently to see them in a way enacted by these humans you know it's like theater is is people in space and then weirdly they put me on stage for a talk back and i uh, i you know first thing i did was what i just did with you i kind of disavowed i said well that wasn't that was amazing but it wasn't my work that was just like their their thing and i'm just a a grateful helpless admirer of it but then someone said the question that that I, at that point, still got quite a lot, which is, are you going to write about this place again? (laughs) And I suddenly, I had a different answer, although the answer I thought initially was a joke. I said, well, if I ever were to write about Dean Street again, Mm -hmm. the only way I could do it would be to take the point of view of someone who grew up in a place where someone wrote a a novel about it that was adapted into a theater piece. (laughs) And... Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the theater piece like went to Broadway and became like giant right. like Cats or Rent, and and then everyone saw it and everyone was like, "Oh, you grew up on the you know on the Cats Street, <laughs> you know." And and this person who grew up there hates the book, hates the fame, hates the theater piece, and is like, "I'm going to set the record straight. I'm gonna I'm gonna friggin' fix that." So I, the only way I could write another version of this material would be to write against the fortress of solitude, even though I'm very proud of it, to write as if the person writing it thought that it was pathetic and corny and sentimental and, and also told specific lies, you know, about like specific people, even though, of course, those are characters in a book, the person who takes it really personally and that, Weirdly, that joke that I made on stage in that talkback became the seed of this intention to go back and do it with this like merciless passion for justice and truth. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to fix it.
0: Yeah. I also felt like there was enough energy, though. And this is also when you're talking about teenage boys. I mean, I say this as someone who's very fond of my brother. But like teenage boys, y'all are your own kind of tribe. You really like, and that teenage boy energy, especially baby nerd, teenage boy energy like Miles and um, Dylan have in Fortress certainly comes through with, I fondly think of them as sort of the feral boys of Dean Street from Brooklyn crime novel that that's sort of like figuring out where you are in the world and what things actually mean and, you know, making sure that you have mugging money. And all of these things were these boys and their, yeah, I mean, classically coming of age, I suppose you could call it, but it's fun watching these kids puzzle their way through. And I think certainly, you know, I don't think the feral boys on Dean Street in Brooklyn Crime Story would turn away the
1: idea of having superpowers. They just don't. No, they, quite they, they have. They'd they take them in a hot minute.
0: Yeah, right.
1: But I denied them. <laughs> there's no ring no ring this time around
0: no ring but yeah
1: Yeah. but they do have the same kind of cultural materials yeah and in both cases they're assembling their sense of self and their sense of world out of like this incredibly crazy unedited right you know stratum of cultural stuff signals basically they're like the graffiti the songs on the radio the magazines you know heavy metal magazine whatever it might be they're just grabbing stuff, and they're like, okay, uh, this this is it, this is me, this, this works. And it might only work for 10 minutes, but it's like, it'll do.
0: Well, and there's also the whole sort of the hierarchy, too, like, who's willing to play what sounded like Risk um, and board games like that yeah. that are very complicated and sort of the precursors to Dungeons and Dragons, where, you know, you get these packs of boys sitting very intently trying to recreate you know, these very famous campaigns and whatnot, but mm-hmm. you know, who falls in what piece? Yeah. It's an interesting way to write about class. It's an interesting way to write about access. It's an interesting way to write about race and integration. I mean, the seventies people forget that the seventies were still kind of like shockingly weird for a lot of people. Well, right? I,
1: like, I I've come to think of the, the relationship that we had in that community mm-hmm. to the idea of integration as Incredibly local and specific, and and part of the energy in this book is wanting to explicate that and unpack it because it's really hard to put in broad terms for people because it isn't in broad terms. It's in, it's it's like local in time and space, and then that is there was no dominant community there. It was a total crazy quilt. Secondarily, it was the immediate wake of the idealism of the civil rights movement and. The transmission from all the parents to all the children that something had at least partly just been changed for the better. And we were supposed to reflect that and be the beneficiaries of that. And of course, it was so violently incomplete economic injustice and residual racism and deep, deep undercurrents of you know, unexamined bias and classism, you know, all the things that surrounded this one, you know, yes, it was heroic what the civil rights era accomplished, but this idea that we kids on the street were going to be like the immediate reflection of that and just do like this sort of like kumbaya going forward was so perplexing and so uncomfortable. And, and yet, you know, I, I, I say this now, did we have words for what we were thinking? Mm-mm. Absolutely not. But were we enacting it and measuring it and testing it in our behaviors constantly? You know, it was like our childhood there, and I mean this, you know, for everyone was a kind of laboratory, involuntary laboratory for uh, a, 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 a collapsing proposition that everything had been fixed. <laughs> it would sound so ridiculous from this. Uh, distance now but i couldn't not try to explain that truth um however uh uncomfortable it 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 is now to to reflect on
0: and the difference too though you know we have so much literature that sort of came out of the suburbs right the post-war post-world war ii sort of Everyone flees to the bird. And my parents were among the people who left Brooklyn, actually, for the suburbs of Massachusetts. Long story. And I try not to think about it too much because, I mean, I had a very nice life. Please don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, I'm like, Brooklyn Heights, suburbs of Massachusetts. (laughs) Like, suddenly, I'm in John Updike and John Cheever territory, right, Right. with with no manual. (laughs) Like, hi, what just happened
1: here? I had one friend who moved at the end of fifth grade to White Plains. And I would visit him up there and we would just walk around and he would, he, you know, he was in the school there and he was trying to explain to me what the new idea was of, of like being a a boy, you know, and how status was established and what mattered. And it was like, now we're into cars. And I was like, what's a car? You know, like (laughs) it was so insanely, you know, it was, it was an hour out of the city and it was so different from the streets of Brooklyn that it was, it was like a Mars, you know, yeah, voyage to Mars. Sure.
0: I would not have learned how to drive stick yeah. if we had stayed abroad. I'm like, pretty sure that would not have happened. Yeah. But this idea, too, of capturing this moment and this community that is so unique in so many ways. And yet, you know, it is finding the details of, you know, the accidental details of your own life and someone else's experience, right? Like, yeah. this is not my experience per se but like the chaos of the adults oh yeah absolutely like there's a yeah. lot that it's like oh right there is this universality to yeah. what you're doing
1: i mean i think ironically when i was closer to childhood when i was in mm-hmm. my 30s and i wrote fortress of solitude i expended a lot of emotional energy on identifying with the grown-ups in that book yeah you know i was really trying to make them give them a fair shake <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was trying to balance it, and mm-hmm. in this book, I wrote for the kids. Yeah, and I wrote. It shows. <laughs> I wrote all the way inside the kids. Yeah, and you know there are a lot of reasons, personal and 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 general, that I think that became possible for me or necessary, both necessary and possible. But I'm not too easy on the parents in Brooklyn crime novel.
0: I think it's totally fair. That you're not. I think the parents are more clueless than they know. Like, the parents don't know what they don't know. And the kids, I think we're very quick as a culture to sort of dismiss how much kids notice. They may not necessarily have the language to tell you exactly what's happening, but they know when stuff is not right. Like, they just know instinctively that other people are possibly not like this. (laughs) Like, this is not how everyone lives and whatnot. But speaking of sort of unconventional backgrounds, you are a professor. At Pomona. But you also dropped out of undergrad to write full time. And also, this is the part I love. You said, Well, I just wanted to sell books and write novels. And I do want to talk about this for a second, because one of the things I appreciate about your work is that you pull from so many different places. Like, genre is not really a thing for you. That we could get elements of sci fi, we could get mystery elements, we could get sort of this dreamy high art kind of cinematic. Experience that we have in Brooklyn Crime Story, but you're also writing afterwards and introductions, and you're everywhere, and it's just this engagement with books and writing. I mean, talk about letting kids fly, right? You hand them a book, and
1: yeah, they're that's just nice. going go like Do that. whatever,
0: right? But I just want to talk about your life as a bookseller because don't you still have a don't you still have an interest in a store up in Maine? I
1: do. Yeah. Well, so I'm connected to a wonderful, uh, rare and antiquarian okay, shop in okay. Maine. Called Red Gap, and I'm kind okay. of I'm kind of like an emeritus bookseller with Red Gap, and and you know at, at at any given summer when I'm back in range, I do a little bit of scouting for them, and I, I price a few books, and I I you know I I play bookseller, but I'm also I have my eye on a kind of a retirement bookshop. I want to open another store before. Yeah, you know, it's always my favorite thing was to open a store mm, in, oh, my, I, in yes <laughs> in my life as a bookseller. I worked at seven or eight different used bookstores, maybe counting Red Gap, maybe eight or nine. Okay, um, but a couple of times I got to be involved in building and opening. It's great. It's, it's really store. great. So I want to give the, that's my like graduation gift to myself when I stop being a professor. I think is I'm going to open one more, and it'll be pretty eccentric, and I'll sell a lot of the books I've collected personally over the yeah. years that you know I don't want my kids to have to deal with these cartons at storage so um Uh, but yeah yeah, you know but in between i also like that you connect it implicitly to the way i uh expend a lot of energy you know Mm. that's you know arguably could be diverted into a a novel or short stories but on introductions and afterwards and even some editorial projects because i think that that kind of curation stuff Mm -hmm. is uh or like book djing is yeah. is kind of related to it it is filling the gap where my book selling used to be yeah it's like i want to put things in people's hands and talk with them about it and so writing an introduction or an afterword or compiling a collection of you know robert sheckley's stories or something that can be kind of like being at the counter of a good bookstore where people are hanging out and they're like well, what what's this and you're like oh let me tell you about that or, you know, or, or they're like, I need something new. And you're like, I think you might dig this. It's that curatorial muscle.
0: Curatorial muscle, certainly. But also that serendipity, that sense of serendipity mm, yeah. and joy. Even if you're, I mean, I'm just thinking of some moments in, say the feral detective where it's like, oh, wasn't expecting that. But there is connecting a person with the book that they need, that they may not know they need it yeah, or just sure. the right book at the right time. It's just, it's.
1: It's like being an herbalist or something. Yeah. Books as books as uh, medicine or intervention.
0: Do you have a story though about finding the book, say when you were working full time as an antiquarian bookseller where you were just like, I cannot believe I found this thing and I cannot believe I'm gonna be able to sell it to whoever needs it kind of thing? I mean, is there a moment like that? Or you mean something too- I already
1: I already knew the value of and I was like, I can't believe yeah. this copy is in my hands yeah, at yeah. the time. A little I- bit
0: of a white whale kind of moment. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean you accumulate all kinds of mm-hmm. moments like that, and and some of them are selfish. There's the book mm-hmm. that you're just like, I always wanted to own one of those. <laughs> right. Somebody just walked in with a moldy box of books that they pulled out of their attic, and it's all worthless. And then at the bottom, there's the you know hard cover of Crying of Lot Forty Nine, and you you give them five dollars for it, and it lives with your lives in your house forever after that.
0: And it's not the book of the month club edition. <laughs> no, right? It's the, it's the book, a
1: little tattered. But I, you know, I kind of yeah. like putting those uh, plastic wrappers on on tattered dust jackets. They almost look better when there's some like wear and tear trapped behind the plastic. It's like it's the age is trapped in there. You know.
0: Well, and occasionally too, I've needed to buy copies of things that I had previously owned or might be in a box in Massachusetts, you know, the yeah. the bookseller's lament, it might be in a box somewhere. It is simply not at hand. And, you know, things go out of print and occasionally you end up buying something. I just, I prefer if, you know, a book is currently available. I like writers to get paid. So I, I yeah.
1: only buy used things when it's out of print, but that's me. Well, they're also the books I buy every time I see them because I always yeah. want to give it to someone else. So well, I and just-
0: that's, Yeah, exactly.
1: Accumulating them, you know, and-, and What's really cool is, you know, that every once in a while, one of those books will suddenly be available again. Like mm-hmm. There was there was about 15 years where I would buy any copy of Don Carpenter's H- Hard Rain Falling that I could f- find oh, because I, I wanted okay. to hand it, it personally to people. And I was like, this is one of the great American prison novels and no one knows it exists and you've got to read it. And I, I wanted to be able to, I don't, I, I like to own books and I like mm-hmm. to give books away. I don't like to loan books because it creates this anxiety on both sides. Right. Will I return it? Will it be returned? So when I when I want to give away a copy of a book, I want to say it's yours now. Yeah, yeah. So I would buy every copy of Don Carpenter's book that I could find, and then New York Review of Books brought it out. Suddenly, there's this beautiful hardcover. I mean, a beautiful uh, paperback, paperback in that yeah, series yeah. with uh, with the nice acid-free pages and a new introduction. And I'm like vindicated for for one thing. I'm like, yeah, see. It was good.
0: <laughs> I bought a copy of the New York Review of Books edition of Flaubert and Bovary, the Francis Stieg Mueller, because I had my dad's old copy and it smelled yeah. really bad because the paper was rotting. And I was like, you know what? I, yeah, you get touched by books and there's kind of no turning back.
1: Yeah. There's really you know, no turning back. One of my fantasy shelves, of course, it could never be assembled, mm-hmm. uh, it would be. The first edition of every book that NYRB has done in their series, yeah, just all together.
0: That is a very large space.
1: It would be big, yeah.
0: And every single time, you know, because as you know, when you live with a lot of books, occasionally you've got to do the thing and call and... Oh, no, no, no. To have new you have to,
1: you have to, You have to rent a storage space at that point if you're me. <laughs>
0: well, okay, there's that too. But sometimes you also have to come. And every time I go to clear out the New York Review of Books section, I just, I can't do it.
1: I can't do it. Well, they look so they look so good together. They anyway. look fantastic,
0: yeah. and it's kind of my kryptonite. And so often, it's just a weird thing that I've never heard of. It, a lot of literature and translation for me. Being able to connect with the surprise and the serendipity and the discovery—it's yeah. it's such a treat.
1: Yeah, it really oh, I've is. actually gone gone out of my way to uh, work NYRB reprints into my syllabus. So I've I've taught uh, I taught. Uh, Ackerley's *My Dog Tulip* in my course on animals, and I I teach um, *Butcher's Crossing*. Uh, in my... I
0: like that better than the one that better everyone... than *Stoner*. I, I, I agree. Do. It's his I masterpiece. Do.
1: It's such a beautiful book. Such I mean, so so fierce too. It's, but there is no greater book on the subject of the American mm-hmm. fantasy of the frontier, right? Than that novel. And And that's um, the
0: thing. That is the thing. I I spend quite a lot of time in California, in Los Angeles, and just the way we still see the American West. I mean, you can go to the Huntington and they still have giant collections of stuff that I grew up seeing in New England. And I'm like, really? Do we have to have this here too? Yeah. Hey, can we talk about some of the influences? Because, I mean, I know when you were writing
1: the, I call it the
0: backgammon novel, but
1: the blot. Yeah, it has two titles. That okay, book is right.
0: The UK title is the blot, and then the, the American title, is, the title blot,
1: is a gambler's anatomy.
0: Okay, and, a gambler's um, anatomy.
1: Yeah, this is funny. Uh, you know, one of the running jokes I have with myself uh, it's not probably as entertaining to anyone else. Is I want to do like every everything that an author can do at least once. Right. So, okay. like, I so for example, I you know that that thing of finishing someone else's unfinished book. I mm-hmm. did that once. Yep. When I was a kid, I was always fascinated by it. it was Graham Greene, I think I noticed it first, with people who had variant titles, right. where there was a UK and, an, and, and a US title for the same novel. And I was like, I want that to happen once. And so I turned in that novel to my US publisher, Doubleday, mm-hmm. yeah. as the blot, which I, f- I still feel is sort of the true title. And they were not into that title at all. And so it got retitled A Gambler's Anatomy, which I, you know, I mean, I made that title up too. And it's, it's fine. It's good. It works. But then when the time came for the UK, I was like, could we revert? How do you feel about the blot? And they were totally into it. So it's my variant title.
0: So the variant title, but Graham Greene, obviously you were, you have said that you were rereading a lot of Graham Greene before right you wrote. that
1: time. Yeah.
0: That book. And then also Tolkien was a very big influence on the feral detective. I mean, obviously Chandler too. Yeah, But can we talk about some of the influences on Brooklyn crime story? Because I'm completely fascinated by the idea of Green. And again, Green is one of those authors who sort of perennially lives on, maybe some minor Greens get culled every now and again, but like the majors never leave. Those never get handed off. But I love the idea that you're pulling from all of these. I mean, you've even talked about how Another Country by Baldwin That's just is key, an influence key on key Fortress. For me.
1: Yeah, it was yeah. big for and, Fortress and it's always with me. That's a very key novel for me. I
0: mean, Ruf, the way Ruf, it opens with Rufus walking through Times Square and you're just like, yeah. oh, I get it. You are right there in that moment. Yeah. And it is, I mean...
1: His ability to capture the city as I mm-hmm. actually feel it. Yep. I mean, it it entered into my body and my bloodstream. I read that book as a teenager and the way that characters relate in in social structures, unconventional social structures within the city, and what it means to them to live in that city it, it's just—it's enormously congruent with every every intuition I I ever had about my parents' lives, the life I was making, and so it's just it could there couldn't be a more uh, foundational novel for me.
0: All right, so another country is part of Brooklyn crime novel, but.
1: That's not the only thing. Oh, no. Yeah. So I was, well, so I I went back to, for some of the craziest parts of this book, like the places where I was doing uh, the the sort of semi-hard-boiled mid-century Brooklyn voice, I went back to things like early Gilbert Sorrentino novels, like Steelwork, and of course, uh, Selby, you know, Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is, you know, brutal, brutal, painful book, but the voice. The the way that vernacular captures the energy of those streets and those the lives being lived by people that you just ordinarily, you don't hear their voice. So that was part of it. Uh, things like Selby and Sorrentino, but also documentary sources. I was thinking about what I was learning from old newspapers and trying to capture some of that. And I was also listening to the people I was interviewing a lot and wanting the book to be multivocal and be almost a kind of oral history, which isn't to say that they went into the book as literal characters, but their voices transformed what I was doing. And, you know, and the book is the the book has a little bit of a craziness to it because it's irreconcilable. It's holding too many things, you know, too many voices.
0: I don't know if I call it Crazy. It just felt very alive to me on the page. It just it felt like it was a world that I wanted to puzzle my way through. They I wanted to know what happened next. I wanted to be surprised. It's hard to write about a place like Brooklyn. The reading experience of Brooklyn Crime Story was really trippy for me in a good way. (laughs) Very,
1: very trippy in a good way. I'm I'm glad that's I mean, that's for me, that's high praise because I I felt I was out on the very edge of what I know how to do as a writer. that adventure it's it's a sensation that i you know i I'd be lucky to have it another another time you know bef- before i'm before I'm done. It was just every day I was surprising myself with with the corners I was turning it was it was like a a discovery process uh, or an investigation so i hope I hope that what you're testifying to will be true for many people that that the sense that something is being you know an inquiry is being conducted that yeah. uh doesn't take anything for granted that's what that's the flavor i wanted to, to to put across
0: i think too it represents an evolution of how we've changed as a society like oh yeah the language that we've been able to find in the lenses now that we have that frankly we didn't have in the like there are conversations I can have now with older folks that, you know, I'm sorry, my parents were they're very nice people, but like they didn't have the language. And even now, sometimes, you know, oh but then there are other folks in sort of their age group where I'm like, okay, you're fine. You yeah. you're evolving with the world right along with everyone else. And and sort of watching how people navigate new spaces and new language and just change in general is
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I couldn't have said the things. I it wasn't just that I couldn't have known them or understood them the language didn't exist. This this book is is on the shoulders of a discourse really. I mean that's the academic word. I'm an academic now so I'll use it. I reached for every new tool that was being invented just as just as it, I needed it and I was very fortunate to be embarking on this in the situation of the the conversation of the last you know, four or five years, new things became possible almost, almost daily. As I, you know, during the time that I was writing this book,
0: does some of that come from your students? I mean,
1: You're Absolutely. working, with, you're working course, with undergrads, and of course, my students, but also my colleagues. Yeah, I mean, okay, in in conversations that are not always necessarily easy ones, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but you know, the sense of commitment to having them, to being in those, you know, okay, we are some godforsaken involuntary form of community and uh, and communal mind we form we represent for our students, uh, an enterprise of mind which is that we are in we're involuntary collaborators on on the project of like what what is the humanities what is what is literature today not yesterday but today and what's it worth <laughs> and so. You know, those are not always easy conversations, but I'm in them, you know, really. And it of course the book reflects that for sure. Yeah. Have you started the next thing? Uh yeah, yeah, sort of. I've I've got like a <laughs> I've got kind of a document. None of the words in the document will be in the in the book, right, okay. but it's it's me thinking and, okay. and 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 proposing something to myself.
2: I
0: mean, we've gotten a little spoiled. There have been sort of books every couple of years like There's this new sort of pattern of every couple of years, and I was like, okay.
1: (laughs) I I like to keep working. You know, at the start, I had like four novels in six years. That to me, growing up, you mentioned Graham Greene, but Patricia Highsmith, Philip K. Dick, the writers I loved most in many ways were often these ones who just, you know, they wanted to leave a shelf or they were going to leave a shelf behind. Of there's so many. Iris Murdoch had a book every other year, and they're big books. And that idea of activity that you're going to you're going to Find meaning not in just you know sitting still and waiting for this one person but that actually it, it's the action of things that you think and do that that create the most meaning. And I always believe that maybe it comes partly from my position as someone who was trained in the visual arts. My dad is a painter. It's like you know the 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 meaning is in a you know what's your new show? Paintings on a wall, a gallery full of utterances, speak one speaking to the next. So I was never going to be content to just kind of say one thing and shut up. (laughs) I always want to keep going.
0: I think we can work with that. I do think we can work with that. I'm just curious to see this bouncing back and forth between
1: East Coast and West Coast. Yeah, well, I uh, happen to enjoy it. You just predicted it. I I am definitely going Southern California again uh, with the next thing. Uh, No more vows about Brooklyn, but I'm going to let Brooklyn Crime Novel just be there for the moment.
0: Yeah, I think it just, it needs some space. I think yeah. there are going to be some people who get it immediately. And then there are going to be some people who are like, what did I just read? And yeah. I like that kind of dialogue around a book. I happened to have very much enjoyed it. So, you know, obviously I would like more people to be on my side, but we don't know yet. I mean, we're taping this yeah. before the book actually pubs. So we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, the th- feeling I've always had is that, of course, it's going to be uh intense, Mm-hmm. and sometimes disturbing experience for people, it was an intense and often disturbing experience to be the, the book's maker. But also that it arose in conversation and that it will necessitate conversation. That it's not a kind of closed system where I just drop these tablets from the mountaintop and say, Oh, well, you, you figured it out. But it, you know, things like talking about it with you matter inordinately in this case because it's a, it's a book that is kind of open-ended in a way. Not that it doesn't have an ending, but that it's, it's, it's a conversational aspect is continuous.
0: Although before I let you go, I do have one question about the HP Lovecraft yeah. basement library. Mm-hmm. Is that urban legend? Is that you making it up? Is that, what is that exactly? Oh yeah, no, is I, had some, thing?
1: I had some, I had some, some things to substantiate that. I mean, he, okay. well, first of all, he did live very right. unhappily, basically in my neighborhood for a spell okay. and, and, and you know, the the awful things he had to say about the 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 experience of being in a, a multicultural Brooklyn are, you know, some of the most shameful utterances on his track record. But also there was this myth among the used booksellers of Brooklyn that he'd left some papers and that someone had scooped them up. And so um now maybe that was an urban legend, but it was wasn't my entire invention. It was something that I was working working off of. Yeah.
0: I mean, if anyone's interested, N.K. Jemison has a duology that kind of takes on Lovecraft in New yeah. York, and it's really fun. So, you know, if you haven't read that, I would, I would start there. Is there <laughs> anything we missed? Is there anything you want to add before I let you go back to, you
1: know? This is terrific. I, I love talking with you about it, and I could do it forever. You know, I'm just so pleased by some of the things you said, because it's my wish that this book, like I said, uh, that people want to walk into it with questions and thinking of their own.
0: I think that's exactly what you're going to get. But Jonathan Lethem, thank you so much. Brooklyn Crime Story is out. And, you know, if somehow you missed Fortress of Solitude, you go back and check that out, too. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. This was a treat.
3: I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over. And today I am very excited. I am joined with Benjamin Lavetout. The author of The Maniac, an incredible new book about, well, it's about a lot of things. It starts with John von Neumann. It has AI. It has incredible insight into science and madness and splendor and so many other things. You may remember his last book, When We Cease to Understand the World, which was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize and the National Book Award in Translation. And so I am very excited to talk about this book today. Thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much, Jenny.
3: I mean, it's hard to start somewhere with this book, right? It's a lot. It's so many things all at once. It is fiction in an interesting sense. It is not what I think many people would picture as a novel. Maybe that's something we need to revisit as a literary community. But I'd love to start with your description of the book, if you'd like.
4: Oh, that's always very hard to do. Well, it begins with the story of a physicist. It's a tragic story. It's a real-life story of one of Einstein's best friends who, well, he sort of fell into despair because of several things, not least of which was the rise of Nazism and uh, what was happening with physics at that time because he was a teacher and he had a very hard time transmitting something that he, he seemed... To think that nobody could understand. He also had depression. So his name was Paul Edinfest, and he he shot his uh his young boy before killing himself. His boy had Down syndrome, so he had previously rescued him from from Germany. The book starts with that, and it's a sort of essay. That text has the shape of an essay. I would say no. I never like to pin these things down, but the the register and the shape. And the tone is an essay. And, and then the main part of the book is dedicated to John von Neumann, who is just a titanic. It's, he's a titan of science. It's very hard to pin him down. And that, his story just touches on every single aspect of 20th century science. Mathematics, the foundations of mathematics, computation, digital light, hydrodynamics, Nuclear weapons, um, the theory of games and economic behavior. Von Neumann is a bit, to, in my mind, Von Neumann is an example of what advanced artificial intelligence could look like. He was really the before him, we didn't have uh, anything close to a computer. He was one of the first, he was the founding fathers of computer science, and but his own mind worked like that, so. That that lets me touch on basically all of my interests, from mathematics to to AI, and I I tell that in the in the shape of a of a choral novel, I guess I would say that it's a chorus where von Neumann is never seen directly because he's too big. He's like a godlike figure, and I think that monsters and gods you can only see them in their true size when they're seen from afar. It's like you have to get at them by parts because they're just too big to fit inside your head. And then after that, the final part of the book is sort of told like a piece of journalism because it's it's mostly, if not all, really fact based. It's the games that that Google's AI, Deep AI, played against the South Korean Go champion Lee Sedol. So the book begins with a 16-year-old boy with Down syndrome, shot by his father, and it ends with the most advanced artificial intelligence that we had at the time. It's a kind of, it's a sort of story of intelligence. It's a book about, in part, it's a book about intelligence.
3: And that's that's simple, right? That's easy to look at. I think that so many times as I was reading this book, I needed to take a moment and stop and think and often i'm a a one sitting reader which i truly could not be with this with the maniac because i had to take breaks and to stop and to process and understand because these concepts these ideas these people are larger than life they're larger than story than than just one moment in time I think it's really interesting, the the piece about you writing around sort of this character of von Neumann because he cannot be seen directly because he cannot be understood in that one moment. Was that piece of the story what came to you first? I'm intrigued to know how this all came together. Was there something that showed up first, an interest or a, a figure?
4: What usually happens with the things I write is that they're born from research that I do for the previous books, I am fundamentally attracted by what I would call singularities, be they mathematical, physical, personal, those aspects of reality that really nobody understands completely. And and to me, certain stories just have a, a fundamental, essential mystery to them incomprehensibility is something that i find extremely attractive so each one of those stories has a secret heart which is very hard difficult to understand in in paul's case it's not just the murder of his son it is also what was happening at the time that he was doing physics and it's also it has to do with a certain unknowability that that matter itself has, right? And that it's very hard if you come close to it, if you come close to these mysteries, it's difficult to remain unchanged. And the way the ideas that Paul becomes obsessed with have to do with with irrationality, right? And with irrationality, with the power of, of, of what is irrational about ourselves, but also with a certain, Paul is a bit of a prophet. No, he f- he's a passionate person, and passionate people suffer, and suffering is one of the ways in which we can get a sense of what's coming. It, I have always felt that sensitivity uh, comes at a at a high price, but it, but it also gives you a sense of the future. And Paul kind of sees it coming. in In the case of von Neumann. It is still difficult. I mean, the people who knew him could only speak to him about him in terms that we usually reserve for mythical figures, right? I mean, his friends would say stuff like, to me, the book began, in a sense, with one, one phrase from Eugene Wigner, who was a childhood friend of von Neumann. And Wigner said, only he was fully awake. And I am fascinated by anything that has to do with enlightenment, awakening. And that's the reason I read, it's the reason I write. And I was just fascinated by this person who couldn't even be, he, you could compare him to people who were geniuses, considered to be geniuses. And he seemed other, he seemed different. And to me, it was like, it was a way to think about the world we're moving into, where, to me, I think von Neumann really left us a part of his mind. And in the final chapter with, with, with the, the games of Go, there are two moves in those games. There are kind of miraculous that have never been played before, that go against everything we thought we knew about the game. So there's always these central mysteries that I'm trying to write around
3: And these themes of delusion and madness and greatness and singularity that feel, I think many people would look at, especially the sections on AI or even on sort of political nationalism as represented, this sort of warning, I guess, but it almost seems more of a cyclical notion of mystery and identity more so than just a warning of what's to come, because there's a grandness to all of it, especially in the AI portion that goes beyond just so often now we we rail against any sort of moving in that direction. People are so anti- I think especially in the literary community, anti-AI, anti-all that, but there is this wonder and magic to it that goes beyond just the initial pang of no, we don't want that.
4: I think we're right to be afraid. I think we've been, as a species, sort of haunted by certain dreams throughout all of history, you know. We have this longing for for apotheosis, you know, we have a deep, really strange. Impulse to, to become gods. We we created them, we've fashioned them ourselves in their image. Whether people believe that they were here before us or after us, it doesn't really matter. We've had this sort of relationship with things of great power, of great beauty, and and, and of a terrible beauty, as long as we can think back, right? And now this aspect of technology is suddenly taking these attributes. So one of the ways in which we can think about what's happening now with advanced technology is that we have developed a language to interact with things that are higher, stronger, smarter, more powerful, more dangerous than we are. We've just kind of forgotten that for maybe in the last hundred years. But there is... There is no way that you can avoid feeling awe and terror at something like artificial intelligence. I really think that we need to rediscover and re... that there is a certain madness to the world, not just to ourselves. And I think that literature is one of the better forms that we have to, to interact with that. Because To me, the heart of literature is is delirium. It's not madness. It's not about going crazy. But it is about possession and delirium and and ardor, right? And there's a fever. And that's why I think I'm drawn to these feverish ideas and fevered characters.
3: When you're researching your works in general and at large, are you... Finding that you're researching a bunch of things, so and they're whittled down into what. How do you structure um, your all of your research? Because between these last two books, I imagine it's been a pretty massive amount of learning and understanding. There's a lot of topics of science and math that maybe don't often find themselves featured in contemporary literature in any sort of significant way. So, how do you take those? ideas and create?
4: To quote one of the characters in the book, I really do think that understanding is a sort of... it's a It has a wholeness to it. If you study the Vedas, if you study Buddhist texts, you will have a better understanding of quantum physics than if you just come at it from a sort of purely rational perspective. I dabble in a lot of things, and my my esoteric interests are sort of overlaid on these other more scientific concerns. I'm, I think, my my the way my research works is that I am not really trying to understand so much as I am trying to find what is still mysterious and to find what makes these things mysterious. So you're in. I, I'm not a scientist, so I cannot do science, so, and that's a bit frustrating. I'm not a mathematician, and I know that there's this entire universe out there that only a gifted few actually get to interact with. And to me, that is just a source of, of envy that gets me, you know, excited. So um, my research is really, um, it's very different when you're. I'm trying to get at the heart of things. And that's very different when you're trying to communicate an idea or trying to kind of get some, I don't want people to understand. I want people to feel excited. I want people to feel, you know, I want books should be something that you cannot put down and are also afraid to open. And that's that's difficult it's difficult to do you know it's 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 a. you have to necessarily put yourself at risk you have to put yourself in that state so it's not so much about reading about the discoveries of, of quantum mechanics or analyzing the story of the maniac it's about being manic it's about uh inhabiting the mental space of someone who is considering ideas that will change the history of humanity so I would say that it's it's very I do my research is as thorough as I as I as it needs to be as it needs to be but there's writing is not really about research and I I really hate when writers go on about their research I mean <laughs> I don't know why they're so proud of it but I don't know I'm also a magpie, I'm stealing things from everywhere, right? The only thing I feel about research is a gratitude for the people who do the serious work, and that let me then thieve around and find ideas.
3: I think for a lot of readers, they like to hear about research, because it's a similar thing to looking at scientists of doing something that maybe you can't do. Not everyone can, you know, go through and write and create the worlds and the you know sentences and structures that writers do and so i think people get a curiosity for how that brain works just the same as we get curiosities for these genius figures
4: yeah i I mean i wish i could be more honest because the things that really go into writing the research part of these books i would say is a lot more esoteric than people think they're looking at the, it's like, yes, of course, there's a lot of ideas there. But I use ideas to point past those ideas to deeper, stranger meanings. And that is the part of research that is actually a lot more exciting. It's, the, it's using the mechanisms of the unconscious. Huh? Literature is, is, a, is a very dark art. It's not something that you can research your way towards a good book. No, I don't, not at all. No, that's kind of dead. To, to, to find something that is still alive, um, you have to get your, your hands dirty. You have to... Writers throughout history have always used the same mechanisms, right? It's really about possession. It's really about giving yourself over. And, and uh, I don't want to be too romantic about it, but... Because there is a lot of, you know, right brain or whatever. I don't know what side of the brain does the thinking, but, but it's, you're trying to do both of these two opposing things at the same time.
3: I think that something that stands separately about your work that I always find is the act of engagement that I, as a reader, am allowed to feel when I read. There are some books that you can read and your eyes just glaze over and you, you know, you just sort of absorb what you absorb. But when I can be in communion with a book that I'm reading, that I can connect with, and that challenges me back, that's where I find that moment in, in literature. That's, I think, why I read. I want to know everything as a reader. I, I don't have a lot of time, so I got to try and get it all in one shot. So. Finding these books that hit all those pieces, that mystery, that magic, that wonder, that I can put something in and get something back, that snaps in your literature, that works so well. Well, I'm I'm glad
4: you get that experience. I think that all writers, even if they don't like to use this type of language, are very aware that if you do not by some strange act of magic capture a little tiny piece of the spirit in your book, it's going to be dead. It's, it won't have life. Even if it's a good book, even if it's fascinating, even it's, so to me, this process of writing is, is really a very strange alchemy. If you do it right, it does at times feel as something that was given you don't feel complete ownership. Uh, you don't feel that way, and and I and it's to me it's great because I used to suffer a lot just trying to find things to write about or or ideas to express. And when I changed my focus to observing the world, to just saying, "Okay, you know what? I'm you know just interested in this little part of an equation." It's, it's it's one term in an equation. How do you write about that? And that was a big change for me, you know, where books were no longer a means of, of self-expression, right? It was about capturing something of the world. And, and to me, that is when I started to write and, and to to enjoy writing. But there's every time you face a new book, at least I try to spend a long time, right, trying to find those ideas that are still alive. Because an idea that becomes flesh to a writer and to a reader is a very rare thing. And even if you're completely agnostic, I know from my own experience that if you become infected by something, if something really digs its claws into you, it's very hard to get it out. It's very hard to get it out. So I try to find there is a lot of these kind of ghosts haunting the world you just need to develop a sensitivity you know to go after them
3: do you feel like we're losing that in literature do you think we're losing that search for those ghosts and for those ideas as we move forward as people spend time you know scrolling through the internet and focusing on so much of what is directly in front of them and no longer looking past into where we've been and where we could go.
4: I don't like to give like condemnations of, of the state of literature, because, but I do think that people have come to the point where they they don't even believe in the invisible anymore. And to me, it's like, well, you don't have to believe it. There, It's there. I mean, that's why we've invented science, because I I use science because it's the most direct way to prove to people that there is so much about the world that they cannot perceive, that they cannot understand, that goes beyond us. It's a direct reminder. It's not a, I don't have to convince them, you know, that I don't have to convince them of, of the obvious fact that we do not inhabit the world, we inhabit our imagination. And our imaginations are delirious landscapes, right? We don't live in the world like a rock lives in the world. But what I do is I use science because it's, it's a very direct showing. It's like, yes, look, there's, there's so much about this. And, and literature has always been enamored by that. Not only enamored by it, I think books add to this this aspect of the world we are dealing with the invisible we are dealing with with things that are immaterial the wonderful thing about literature is that it can consider everything it's like a it's like a particle accelerator but the things that we're accelerating and crashing into each other are the meanings of this world the the meanings that we have either discovered or created so we can entertain theories that are just downright wrong and that have been misproven, we can engage with the totality of the human experience. And a lot of that is not fact-based. It's just imagination. It's it's delirious. It's nightmares. It's conspiracy theory. So in that sense, uh, literature can really kind of, because it can handle the truth, but it can also handle its opposite. And By mixing those two things, right, we get to me, to my mind, something that is much closer to our daily experience, to the experience of being alive.
3: I think that's the allure in many ways of writing and reading about these real people, these real moments in history, these things grounded in what we would consider nonfiction reality. But there's more to that always. There's always an expansion. And to sort of move through that world that you create of, yes, this is based in whatever is historical truth, but science and literature or fiction or whatever, they're not just two sides of the same coin, they're interwoven. I mean, they're both tools that humanity has created to understand the world just in different ways
4: the messy understanding it's it it reflects the convoluted networks of our brain we have of course it's wonderful that we've developed systems to distinguish fact from fiction you know hallucination from from perception but as a writer you're dealing with all those things mixed together and that is how we live our daily lives that is what humanity has to deal with we have this hallucinatory organ in our brains it's always guessing it's always making things up things come load with with so much meaning and literature is lucky enough that it can deal with all of that right there is nothing better than an apocryphal story it's not true but it's full of meaning it is and that's why they last and that's why people repeat them it's because it's a condensation it's a perfect condensation and you can say yes well that didn't happen and it's of course it didn't happen that way. But an apocryphal story resists the passage of time because it's so loaded with meaning. It's a trade-off between what we want the world to be like and what the world, you know, what the world is like and what it should be like. Wouldn't it be nice? And that's why people are so, you know, that's why we're addicted to movies, books, everything that has to do with the imagination. And it's wonderful that we can add to the world so much. It's part of our richness. And... Are people losing that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not like I'm immune to it. I'm glued to my phone as well. In writing, in writing, you are forced to interact. Writing will inevitably lead you down roads that you end up quiet, you end up by yourself. You end up having these ecstatic moments and that can save you from the drudgery for a while
3: because I can never just be reading one thing at one time as I was going through and reading The Maniac. I was also reading um, Emily Wilson's new translation of The Iliad and those huge interactions with the gods and the sort of structure that is never-ending and that we see repeated again and again in literature as we go through. It reminds you that this has all been done before and will be done again and we have these moments, these interactions. I mean, there, you they are interacting with the gods. Back then, we could commune directly. We still knew how. And mm-hmm. having that sort of theme shadowing as I was reading these sort of connections with our new gods technology, it, it created an interesting uh, blend of we sometimes forget, but we actually still remember all of the things that we knew before.
4: Well, it, we couldn't function. Our brains are built on these symbols. No? we need them. The more you know about them, you the more you understand yourself. I am I am always reading. I'm, I'm always writing with God in mind, with gods in mind, with goddesses in mind. You really need them. They're, they're tools, they're absolutely necessary. We're writers, and the people who read, we should be agnostic, we should be unbelieving, and yet we should also have this capacity to inhabit for short periods of time uh, mind states and beliefs that are not rational, that are not sane. And that is, it's a source of richness for for anybody, whether you're a reader, a writer, an artist, whatever you do, it's really important that you don't leave out half of the mechanisms of your mind. uh, And we're having to deal with such contradictions, in the book, I really try to bring them together. There is always a religious undertone to these scientific ideas. I'm always trying to wed the language that we use to apply, also because it's becoming necessary, right? I mean, it's very hard to to, and because it comes out naturally. When AlphaGo won the tournament against Lise Doll, they gave the machine a certificate that said, that it received the highest possible ranking as a gold master for reaching a gameplay close to the territory of divinity. We need these things and they're coming at us. And, and so it's kind of uh, unavoidable.
3: So all of this, I think, has sort of culminated a lot of who you are as a writer and what you do in those aspects. But who are you as a reader? What, what do you gravitate towards? What do you look for?
4: Uh I am a terrible reader, I guess, because I, I I, gravitate uh to the same authors. I'm always coming back. And more and more so. People like like Eliot Weinberger, who I think is an American master and, and who will, I am sure, be more and more recognized as someone who did something with the essay form that has opened up a wonderful space, a wonderful marriage of poetry and essay a use of language a sensitivity of thought that is to me among living writers quite unparalleled I also like Pascal Guignard, the French writer because he illuminates parts of the world that you simply cannot find anywhere else it's it's incredible it's like he was you know from another time inhabiting this present and he's also a very sensual writer and 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 that is something that. Has become quite lost. I find that you know letters, you either they're either too cerebral or they're pornographic. But there's a wonderful sweet spot where something turns you on. It's erotic. It's different. It has to do with with beauty and with a certain sordidness. And then there's just the eternal masters for me: people like like Sebald, like Borges, like Bolaño, and lesser people who are lesser known. Last during the pandemic, we lost Roberto Calasso. Uh, Roberto Calasso, to me, is just uh, an institution. He, he is the answer to what books should you take to an island. And then there's writers from Argentina like Juan Form. Juan Form hasn't been translated yet, I believe. He he created this condensed form because he used to just publish on the back page of a newspaper. And he would just give you these wonderful sketches that felt like magic tricks. You couldn't believe he could do something so beautiful, so profound, in so little space. And week after week, he would publish every Friday. And all of Argentina would just be waiting for his text every Friday. Then there's, you know, you can always go on and on. But I'm looking at the few books that I have around (laughs) me, and it's always the same author's. And also a lot of I mean, just no fiction, no? Just that's like the rule. No fiction. Just please. And no no novels. Not even I mean, I would never read my own novel. I, I just wouldn't do it.
3: I mean, I suppose that makes sense. I think ever I think there's a lot of artists of many disciplines who would say, Never my own work. But I think there's so much value in rereading. I think some there's a lot of people I know say, I never watch a movie twice, I never read a book twice, I never go back. And I think, you know, I get that there's a lot of there's always more, there's always more content, but so many of the favorite works of my life are things that I have read fifty, a hundred, a 1, thousand times because Absolutely. they become a part of you.
4: Rereading to me is one of the mm- most enjoyable experiences. I watch my favorite movies eight times, 10 times. I don't care how many times there is. I mean, we should all aspire to create work that actually merits a reread. That's kind of like a basic thing, right? Are you doing something that someone can watch twice because it changes your, your decisions. It it, it really, it, it, and also because it takes time, you know, you need to build layers. It is there is nothing harder than building something with meaning. And that takes time and it takes giving yourself over and it takes it takes so much. It's, it's almost a miracle, right? A good book is almost a miracle, and they're very rare. So and, and people, I don't know, my editor friend hate me for saying stuff like that, but I will just, you know, just skip whatever's coming out now, including my book, if it's good enough you'll you'll hear about it eventually maybe i don't know 10 years down the line you'll you'll but there is we have these tried and true things that have already been discovered i'm just not i don't i'm not about what's new i mean i consume every good movie but but they're very rare i mean i i know that there's so many being made and with books it's the same and for writers i mean i don't like walking into a bookstore because it's just a daily reminder of how few the words I write will have any value at all, any value at all. And that is just a reminder that is very hard to deal with because I like to write. And that's kind of it. I mean, we produce a lot, a a very few of those things have value. And when you find it, just reread the hell out of it.
3: Is that your um, message that you want to leave readers with for your works? I mean, I always wonder what when an, an author has a new work coming out into the world that you know everyone asks them the same sort of questions of, oh, you know, who do you hope finds it, or or what do you want readers to take away from it? But maybe I'll ask you again in ten, fifteen years, what you'd like.
4: I I couldn't care less. I don't. I don't. I don't really. Worry about that at all. I've been very lucky in, in the sense that for well, the last couple of years when I've been writing, I've sort of in the back of my mind, because of the subject matter, really, you kind of realize, oh well, this, this this may be important to somebody out there, right? And I've had experiences, I've met some incredible people, thanks to my books in the last couple of years. It's actually been so I'm very good at contradicting myself because it's been the best part of it all, right? I've met some incredible people. And uh, if that keeps going on, it it, it brings a a richness to to my life that I never expected to have. But the biggest prize of all, it's always going to be the writing, not even the book, the publishing. That's all, that's just, it's already happened. You know, I finished this book years ago now, years ago, at least the first, first acceptable draft. So you leave it
3: behind. Well, I think that readers will find their ways to it, whether it's now, whether it's in 50 years, these themes, these ideas that you surface, this wonder, this awe, people will find it and it will have meaning to them. And I thank you so much for your time today. The Maniac is out now and I truly can't wait for people to get their hands on it. So thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much, Jenna.
2: Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend two fantastic books to go with t- today's special double shot episode. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, but I'm going to have Jamie kick things off. Jamie, go right ahead.
5: Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm in Leewood, Kansas. I'm just blown away by where Jonathan Lethem has landed with Brooklyn Crime Novel. What he's done is so hard to classify um, that there are very few things that are going to compare but I think I have a great pick for people who really want to read a postmodern novel that is also very human and accessible and relatable. And that's Underworld by Don DeLillo. Giants versus Dodgers and the epic Bobby Thompson home run, the shot heard round the world. And coincidentally, it happened on the same day that the Russians tested a nuclear bomb. And that sets the stage for what is to come, which is this sprawling, all-encompassing novel about life in the second half of the 20th century in America, um, which is, of course, informed by World War II and the resulting Cold War paranoia. And you get glimpses of every significant cultural moment of all the historical figures and people who were in the ballpark during the game or who were important in the second half of the 20th century. And DeLillo traces the history of the home run ball back through time, which kind of provides this framework for all of this, these multitudinous flashbacks. And along with that story, he has, a, has another linear story in there, which is the story of the troubled marriage. It's hard to describe because it's hard to describe, but this is a genuine feat of storytelling. And if you've read White Noise, you know DeLillo's style is to include all the information. This novel turns up the flame to great effect. It's about everything. It's about art, music, B-52 bombers. Obviously, it's about baseball. It's about garbage and war and the Kennedy assassination and Jedgar, A.K.A. J. Edgar Hoover. It's poetic imagery mixed with cutting sarcasm, mixed with surrealism, mixed with the most minute realistic detailed descriptions of objects that we consume and things that we consume every day. Uh, this is obviously this is a complex book, and it tops many lists of important American novels, his encyclopedic knowledge of modern concepts and products and conveniences and identities, and the heart and humor embedded in the language he uses to tell his stories are just, they're particular to him, to his talent. Uh, It's a daunting project, but if you're up for an absolutely unique and ambitious and intricate read, then I think Underworld by Don DeLillo should definitely be on your radar. Mark. Uh.
2: (laughs) I would agree. It is fantastic. And you're right. It is a lot. <laughs> yeah. it is it's like it's a, a lot.
5: A, it's a tongue twister to oh, even talk about.
2: <laughs> it is a, a rabbit hole uh, deep dive of every topic under the sun. And it's so, so good. Well, I was uh, going to pick something to go along with The Maniac, which I'm very excited for. It made me think about moments of historical importance that have been fictionalized. It led me to a book that I feel Very, very strongly about that came out not too long ago, called "The New Life" by Tom Crew. This is a book that was featured on a previous episode of Poured Over, so please dig into the archives and check this out. It's an episode that also includes the brilliant, brilliant Colin Tubin. By all means, just listen. But so I'll give a small pitch for this. Um, It's a book that takes place in Victorian England and follows two men who each have their own personal stake in promoting a more progressive society, specifically one that has removed the stigma of homosexuals. The two lead characters, we've got John Addington, we have Henry Ellis. They are on an endeavor to create an academic text that sheds light on the lives and troubles of Uh, gay men john and henry have aspirations for what they call a new life which is again a society of progress where people can live without repression of course in the late 1800s um this kind of work let alone this kind of conversation let alone this kind of thought is very dangerous this was also around the time that um oscar wilde was arrested and sentenced for his indecency Uh, So our two heroes walk a very delicate line. John and Henry are based on historical figures who did, in fact, publish the first academic text on homosexuals. Their personal lives and much of the circumstances are beautifully fictionalized and just really infuse the novel with layers and nuance and loveliness. It's a story of hope and fear, of acceptance and shame. And really about how far we've come and how far we still have to go. It's excellent. And I believe a debut and a brilliant one at that. So please check out The New Life by Mr. Tom Crew. But guess what? That's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes and Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Jamie, where can we find you?
5: Uh, You can follow my home store at BN Leawood KS.
2: All right. That's all we have. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading.
5: Bye. Bye, Mark.
1: Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.